You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Welcome to another edition of the Inside Intercom podcast. As we turn the page into 2017, we've been thinking a lot about the buzzwords and trends of the past year. Things like chatbots, voice UIs, building products as systems, and conversational commerce, as well as reflecting on lessons learned during our own 2016 launches, things like Educate, our new knowledge-based product. Since the past year, and dig into where product and design are headed next, we hosted a roundtable discussion with three of our show's favorite voices. Here, you'll hear from Intercom co-founder and chief strategy officer, Des Trainer, P of product, Paul Adams, Director of Product Design, Emmett Connolly. If you like what you hear and want to catch more great conversations around product, design, marketing, and startups throughout this year, subscribe to our show on iTunes or your favorite podcast network. And with that, let's hop into the studio with Des, Paul, and Emmett. Hi, and welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast. Today, I'm lucky to be joined by Paul Adams, our VP of Product, and Emma Connolly, our Director of Product Design. How's it going, folks? Very well, thanks. Not bad. 2016 was marked in a lot of ways by like bots. You know, we had our own opinions, we had our own experiments, but as did the entire industry. Is the future of product design really going to sit inside a chapable? Yeah, we uh, wrote, I mean, both them and I wrote a lot of blog posts about bots over the course of the year, and we built a lot of bots too. Some of them saw the light of day, some didn't. I think we learned that certainly bots are overhyped. I think the industry as a whole recognizes that they were overhyped the kind of first half of the year. Uh, was very different to the second half of the year in the media uh, and everywhere else. And we did we we built a bunch of bots that didn't really work. I think what we did realize is that they do work for a very specific set of use cases that are probably narrower than people first imagined. There was like a crazy AI vision of the future where bots are as intelligent as humans. And I think our biggest realization was that bots are good at some things and humans are good at other things. Like bots are really good at computation. You know, bots are basically simple computers. So if you need to ask somebody what your next bill is going to be, um, a bot can calculate that far faster than a human could. You'd have to, like, look up the system, find your account, you know, look at the UI, find the number. Um, Whereas things that are dealing with very human things like empathy, emotion, um, reading between the lines of what someone's actually trying to say, Bots are terrible at that, given today's technology. Emmett, from a design perspective, do you then have to spend, like, it sounds like you'd have to spend, like, half your time dealing with, like, what if the bot doesn't know the answer or something like that, like, dealing with the edge, not even edge cases, dealing with the majority of the cases where the bot's probably not going to do a good job. Is that right? Um, in some cases, I guess, we partially, I think, handily sidestep that question, to be honest, in that we have a system whereby a, a human or a bot could answer your question. And so it becomes more of a rooting problem than a problem of what do I do in this failure case where the bot doesn't know the answer. If the bot doesn't know an answer or can't provide a great one, then the human should provide the so, answer. So that's like this idea of like augmented conversations or augmented intelligence or whatever. It's like it's like the bot's there to help if it can. Right, exactly. And only yeah. if it can. Uh, I think a lot of the pitfalls of things we saw this year were uh, maybe use cases where, we, where, where people building these bots were over-promising on what they could deliver. The technology really isn't there yet to have an English language level conversation. And so that is what has, I think plunged us into this 
trough of disillusionment, which is also a good place to be in, right? Because it means that we're like get, getting real about what's actually possible. So I think if 2016 was the year of a lot of hype around this, we could actually see a lot of real life useful tools and products emerge in the next year. It's um, it's really convenient where these things pick whole years in which they're going to experience these uh, iterations. When you think about like, you know, we, have see, we see bots that pretend to be humans, like, hi, I'm Barry, the airline bot. How can I book you a flight or whatever? And then you see bots that are blatantly bots as in like, you know, I'm, I'm the little operator bot. I'm going to point you in the right direction. You know, you said before you think that the idea of like trying to humanize these bots isn't something that like that we want to do in Intercom. But what's the general sort of thinking there? I think our thinking has actually evolved a lot as we've tried out a lot of the experiments that Paul mentioned. So initially, the thing that seemed most obvious to me was, hey, these are friendly little robots that can interact in your conversation and make them be tiny Pixar characters or whatever, right? Um, that was not what resonated with the users that we put our bots, our early iterations of our bots in front of. And what was really interesting is the nuance of just tweaking a little bit of language or the degree to which you personify the bot uh, evokes a very different reaction in the end users. So some of our early experiments had people saying, hey, I'm like bot name, I'm a person, I'm not a real person, but I have a character. And... Um, people didn't like that at all because I think they felt slightly duped by it, that they thought they were here to talk to a person. If you can insert a level of automation and, hey, I am an automated bot that's here to speed up the process, then people can see the value in that and it doesn't feel like a bit of a bait and switch, you know? Do you think, like, you know, we, we obviously we, we had a command line once upon a time where it was just, like, write in the exact word you're supposed to, and you'll get the exact answer. Do you think people's behavior changes when they know they're talking to a bot or do they still continue the formalities and the civility and the sort of, hey, I'm curious about the, you know, like, or is it just like flights, please? For me, like the, this thing is a scale. I think the really interesting, interesting thing that we saw was that over the course of, I guess, the year for us, but also things that are happening around us in the industry, it's a scale. And at one end of the scale is a command line interface. Um, it's clear that you're talking to a computer. I think people don't even actually in many cases, turn around and ask themselves, what is a bot? Like, there's no actual common definition. You know, we, in one of our blog posts, said that a bot is a simple computer program that executes, you know, and then to Emmett's point, like, you can give it a face, you can give it a name, you can make it more human-like or less human-like. If the command line interface is one end of the scale, at the far end of the scale is, like, what Facebook were trying to do, whereby you didn't know if you were talking to a person or a bot, and clearly there somewhere is the Uncanny Valley, we didn't even get close to the Uncanny Valley. You know, we we were far down the, this is clearly a computer program. It kind of looks like a robot-y type thing. And as Emmett said, the minute, the minute it started pretending it was anything other than like a computer, people reacted really negatively to it. But once it said, I'm a computer, I'm here to help, here's how I work. So it's, a, it's the honesty and transparency, is that right? Yeah, partially. I, I, I'll be honest, though, I also think that Part of the 2016 enthusiasm uh, or exuberance from bots was around this sense that like, hey, yeah, that would be amazing. Check out this very simple use case that I like made up and screenshotted and put in my blog post. And people with a sense for product said, oh, wow, that does seem like a really new, simple way of doing things. Then when you try and um, 
actually build these things, you realize, well, maybe typing human English language sentences to a robot isn't how you want to interact with a robot. So to your question, I think if you give people like a blank input field, it leaves a lot of room for the person to be rude to the robot or type, you know, pseudo commands to the robot or type friendly questions to them. I think there's an evolution of the input on the end user side for the person talking to the bot that isn't quite so like English language based and and maybe some of that um, standards around how you, you know, might be given a a set of pre-canned responses that you can just send to the bot might be how these things evolve um, for reasons of it's faster than typing a whole sentence. It's uh, easier because you actually know what you can say to the bot, which is another like problem that these, these blank input fields um, provide. So if I'm right about that, it's possible that that question of like, what should your tone be when interacting with a bot would just go away and, yeah, and it'll be I mean, a bit more user interface based. I, yeah, I was, I was going to say like, you know, if you follow that thread all the way, it's hard to see how that doesn't start to look like buttons uh, right, you click, exactly, yeah. which starts to look like UI, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I think that the most salient characteristic of conversational UI or whatever is not necessarily that you're typing raw text in at the bottom of the screen. It's that you have this back and forth log of commands, right? It right, goes right. back and forth. And there's more than one way of yeah. sending a command to the computer yeah, yeah. then typing it into the input field at the bottom. Yeah, and, and, and maybe there's not a predetermined order the commands should be received in and like, like there will be in a form or whatever. Right. Uh, and to explain, I'd like to play out both sides there. There's also more than one way uh, than having this like grid, nice grid layout on a screen with a left-hand nav and a button down the bottom and like all the other common ways in which we've come to expect products to work. Right, right, right. Okay. I think that's a justifiable amount of chat about bots, given that we've, we started off by saying that maybe they're not actually <laughs> worth discussing. Uh, next up, let's talk about product. Welcome back. I'm joined by our VP of product, Paul Adams, and our director of product design, Emmett. Starting with you, Paul, 2016, you spoke a lot about the idea that products should be thought of as systems rather than as a set of screens or whatever. Have you seen that play out a lot in 2016? Have you seen a lot of new systems emerge? Yeah, um, I guess there's two ways to think about that. One is that most people building software are actually building and designing systems already. They just may not necessarily know it or realize it. But uh, for me, like systems are these kind of broad networks of things that are related and connected. There's simple examples, you know, to demonstrate this. Like Uber is a simple example where Uber are certainly not a software company or certainly not an app company. Uber is this ecosystem of drivers, passengers inventory, all sorts of things. Um, And then over time, as that system emerged and evolved, they added things like surge pricing. And so there's a new actor in the system, which is like, you know, uh, demand or supply and uh, how that affects other things in the system, like price and availability and even where people drive. Like the whole thing changes. You change one piece of the system, other pieces of the system change. I think a lot of people building software actually have systems. They have things where... You change inputs over here, and then outputs over here change. And those things aren't directly connected. They're connected via other things. So Uber's a simple example. You know, one recent example uh, from this year, I guess, that I use is Nike Plus. Right. So Nike Plus totally redesigned their app through the year. Um, I think the new app came out in the August-September time frame. Um, it used to be called Nike Plus Running, and the redesign is now called Nike Plus Run Club. And so just that's a subtle branding distinction. Suddenly it's Run Club 
It's like, oh, it's a club. Oh, there's other people. Oh, it's a system. All right, there's like connected things happening in here. And if you go into the Nike Plus Run Club app now, yeah, you can go on runs, you can track your mileage, all the normal stuff that running apps have. But they've paid a lot more attention to this system of runners, run clubs, uh, the idea you can go on runs with other people, meetups, meetups in different cities, your running shoes. Like Nike Plus had a lot of these components, but they've certainly doubled down, I think, from the outside in on the idea that this is actually a broad ecosystem far beyond the app. Like the app is a conduit to other things happening in real life. Right, connected to the rest of the world. Yeah. Emma, what about you as a from a design perspective, have you seen any new, new things emerge in this regard? When Paul was talking there, I kind of thought of Airbnb, which I think maybe went through a similar transformation this year. Airbnb, the objects or actors in that system were th- used to be things like um, the guests and then the hosts and the houses or accommodation. And now they've added this whole trips thing, right. very much broadening their scope. So one would assume, and it seems like it looking at the product, that they've had to evolve their underlying system to cater for things like what well, trips themselves, but also tour guides and, and all these new things that they've added. So like that that suggests to me that a system will also will tend to expand as, as new uses uh, are demanded of it. Or another example of more of an evolution for me would be um, Instagram, which traditionally was about, uh, if you looked at the Instagram app earlier this year, the big button in the bottom middle would open your camera and you would post that to your stream, I guess, your timeline, whatever. Now they've added this stories thing and almost flipped what they're about. Now the the button at the bottom is to upload a photo you've taken before. That's your curated feed of stuff, which honestly was probably what Instagram is always about, right? Making you look like a great photographer. Exactly. They've added this strip of stories, which is like the main button over there. Yeah, Yeah, the main button now in the top bar opens the camera, right? And that's the the in-the-moment thing. And so they've had to evolve like... That's kind of like their, the their Snapchat alternative, right? Like, I, I feel like, uh, I mean, the, the possibly unfair um, but hard to avoid comparison when yeah. you look at how Instagram has evolved their system yeah. is of Snapchats. Snapchat in itself is an interesting example because yeah. they came from a very chaotic place yeah. maybe earlier in the year and they seem to be kind of rationalizing a lot of concepts. And so you could say that Instagram and Snapchat are kind of meeting in the middle, having yeah. come from very opposite. So Instagram ends started the, with a very clean sort of system that right. was like very obvious. You had like your own stream, other people's streams, and that was it. And Snapchat started from like, frankly, like who knows where really. Like it was the, probably the most uh, aggressive disrespect of like U- <laughs> UI and systemic standards of software. Uh, yeah. That that somehow I, I, I heard it argued a while ago. Like Snapchat's like. Um, uh, unconventional UI, let's call it, uh, was actually part of its genius in that it made the product so, somewhat viral and that everyone had to teach each other how to use Snapchat. I still learn new shit in Snapchat from my friends who are like, oh, look, there's a cool way to put a blue filter on photos if you take a blue icon and expand it. Or It's kind of weird. Snapchat themselves have had an interesting year. I mean, aside from blowing up and like talks of this Epic IPO and stuff, they also released hardware for the first time. Um, I thought that was most interesting because they took a really different approach to people who were like Apple who were trying to get people to either re- replace or start wearing a watch or Google Glass who were trying to get people to like uh, to effectively people who didn't wear glasses to wear glasses and they actually had nothing to offer people who did wear glasses so they kind of le- left them in a difficult situation. Snapchat just said, screw all that, let's just sell some sunshades or some, uh, like some sunglasses. That seems to have worked so far. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? You were both at Google so you have probably have some familiarity with Glass but do you think that that like, you know, to me like intuitively that approach lines up because they're targeting existing behavior, which is sunglasses, 
with a better product, a better pair of sunglasses, that is usually how good products happen. Yeah. How, do you, how do you see it? Yeah, my, my take on it is pretty simple. Um, most successful products like that, I mean, these are kind of, these products are, you know, attempts at like major breakthroughs in, in how people live and act and so on. And the ones that are successful, for the most part, don't try and change people's behavior necessarily. They understand how people behave, act, think. And the new thing that emerges is like congruent with that. Um, I often have talked about this in the past as like building a bridge to the future, an idea that I probably stole from someone else over the years, I can't remember. But this idea of like building bridges to the future was very prevalent, at least when I was at Google, like Emmett and I were there for the most part at the same time, but um, things like Google Wave, Google Plus to some degree, um, but Google Wave certainly was another, like Glass and Wave, these were products that didn't really build bridges to the future. They were so different and forced people to like act in totally new ways people just didn't know what to do with them. Whereas I think um, Snapchat's glasses are sunglasses. And like, that's it. They're sunglasses with a camera. And guess what? People, like you said, people wear sunglasses. And even if you actually look at the launch video for Snapchat's glasses and for Google Glass, the Snapchat video is literally people flying around on skateboards. That's what it is. It's like Southern California, skateboards. It's literally like a shot of normal life, except they've different sunglasses on. And Google Glass's video was like all this augmented reality, yeah. you know, like it was like a science fiction movie. And, you know, like it's kind of obvious to me that the winners are the ones who um, don't radically try and alter society from the get-go. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, uh, obviously, like, you know, if, 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 I, if I was a Googler, I'd be arguing, well, they did, they did all this shit. That they, what is uh, spectacles only a way to record, right? Like... And I'm sure Snapchat folk would say, for now. Uh, and I think, you know, maybe the bridges is the right concept for that. And that, like, maybe you can imagine from here, Snapchat could roll out a next version, which has a screen inside the lens and lets you start to see filters applied or something like that. But obviously, they have to get there. Mm. Um, I think, like, this could be an, an example to see my argument. But if you look at the development of uh, the horse to the car, like, there's an, just you just need to look at all the photos from that era, like, the very first things that emerged were like um, horseless carriages, basically. You know, like the whole thing was like horses and carriages and now this other thing with a carriage. And like you can actually see it step to step by step progression. And even if you look at Tesla, like fast forward to today and look at Tesla, like Tesla, the Tesla car doesn't need to look like a car. It doesn't have to have an engine at the front. Like the whole thing, as far as I understand, like the chassis is the mechanics of the car but it still has like something that looks like an engine and it's something that looks like a trunk uh, or a boot, as we say here. And um, that's because people need this bridge, right? They're not going to buy a Tesla if it looks radically different to a car. It's got to look like a car. You can't help but feel if Google rolled out a, a similar electric car, it would look ridiculous in some sense. I mean ridiculous and not incredibly futuristic, but unconventional. I wonder if there's an element of this, the bridge to the future concept is especially true for consumer products where no one wants to really seem like a weirdo, like on some pseudo futuristic thing. Uh, the car is an interesting example because if you think about a thing that's likely to somehow achieve mass adoption at some stage over the next X years, it's self-driving cars, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems like that will be a gradual acceptance of the general public of self-driving cars and your willingness to take your hands literally off the wheel and trust the computer and so on Um, because that's a consumer use case. But if you think about self-driving trucks, 
fundamentally the same product, I would anticipate that that will be like an almost overnight switch as soon as it becomes possible from a regulation point of view and from a but 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 mostly from a, a bottom line finances point of view. Some CFO of a massive freight company is going to go okay. We're switching yeah, overnight yeah. completely to self-driving trucks and likely the entire industry will follow within a very short amount of time. And, and so I guess it also depends on who your market is, right? Totally fair. You're listening to Inside Intercom. You both spent a lot of a year working on our new product that we released, which is Educate. It's kind of Intercom's take on a knowledge base. Internally, we're quite happy with what's happened. It's been quite a success. But... Um, the product's launched now. Now it's in, we're in a different mode now, and, and you spoke about this recently, Paul. But what happens after launch for a team? Yeah, it's been a fascinating experience to go through over the last month or so. You know, over the course of the, my career, I guess I've launched and iterated many products. Some were successful, some were not. Uh, as Let's just, dig into uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the most of those were not successful. Anyway, moving along. Uh, I think it's uh, been fascinating because the mode that the team needs to work on almost the, the minute after it launches is different to the one that uh, they had before launch. Literally, like, literally overnight. This like, just happens overnight. So up until launch, like in the lead up to launch, you know, design decisions were like antagonized over for a long period of time, but they were then at some point locked down. And it's like, okay, that's in, that's locked down. Do not open this conversation again. Do not increase the scope of this thing. Like, you know, narrow, 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 narrow. Get down to this hit list, you know, knock it off, knock it off, knock it off. Okay, we're ready to go. Like, no opening up of old things. The minute that we launched, suddenly that all goes away and everything's on the table again. And it's just the nature of all software that like when you, you launch something, you've got loads of stuff wrong. Loads. Even if you run a great beta, all the rest, loads of things are wrong. And so suddenly, every single decision you made, every single one, is up for debate again. And for a team, any team, that's gone through this crazy process of narrowing and narrowing and narrowing, and it's really incredible discipline. Like Our, the, our educate team had phenomenally strong discipline to get us to the launch suddenly have to like overnight change to like whoa everything's on the table again and wow we sunk so much time into making that decision that design decision and now you know it's very hard to suddenly accept that we might change it all and do it all a different way and you know iterate and and there's almost a tendency to like become more conservative right because you're like we got it working we finally got past the finish line and now some people are at least using it and liking it and you have to be extremely brave at that point and say well there's a huge amount of input and information that we didn't have available to us before. I, I would almost say like it's a sign of a great a sign of a great product team is not necessarily what they ship in their version 1.0. It's like that version 1.1. That's when you really see like what a, how a great product team operates and thinks. Yeah. How agile, lowercase a, agile can they be <laughs> in uh, adapting to the new world where they're the rubber hits the road and their product is out there and being yeah. used and they're getting feedback. I think, I, like, um, to give credit to Instagram, like, you know, talking earlier about how they've changed over the years, like, it's very easy. You know, Instagram impressed me in its early years because of its simplicity. And there was, um, like, I remember uh, when I was at Facebook, I was there as Instagram was acquired. And at that time, my memory of this is that the Instagram team were incredibly disciplined 
Like there was like pressure from all sorts of in, all over the industry for like you got to add this and you got to add this and like you know, especially like the minute Facebook acquired Instagram, there was comparisons to be made around like oh why does Instagram have this feature that Facebook does and like Facebook knows it works and we should just add it and the team were incredibly disciplined to keep Instagram really simple. And I think a lot of its success in the early years was because it, it was so accessible because it was so simple to understand, and they stuck to this like core use case. And I think credit to them, as Snapchat has like moved the industry on, they've been able to adapt, and that is the sign of a great team—the mm-hmm. team that can change. I think they both represent a really interesting thing for me, which is like, you know, the proof that you do not need a large product footprint to have insane engagement, or like, I guess, kind of like you know, content is king in some sort of fluffy, like, cliched way. But they're both like relatively small product footprints, and I know. If if any of the designers are listening, they're probably pissed off me saying that. <laughs> but I really mean that, like as in, if like you know, they have managed to get stronger and stronger and better and better and more engaging and more addictive without actually adding fifteen more screens or twenty five more workflows. Like which is kind of like stock B two B SaaS philosophy, which is just like more screens and more workflows. So I think it really legitimizes the point. Uh, which and like they both deserve a shitload of credit for that. I think. Okay, let's do a little lightning round to close out. So I've selected a core group of questions, uh, and I ask you to keep your answers as short as possible. And, we'll try. Uh, you won't, yeah, you'll it's be surprised. Paul we'll Adams known for his short answers. Yes, I'm I should talk. Likewise, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very short answers. Yeah. Very Sit down with two people accountable for like four thousand word blog posts and ask them for four word answers. Here we go, uh, Paul. Let's start with you for this one. Yep. Voice as a user interface is relevant in 2017. Absolutely huge, Emmett. No doubt. No doubt. No doubt. Relevant in B2B as well? Too early to say. Conversational commerce. Overhyped? Absolute bullshit? Very meaningful? Uh, not overhyped. Definitely a big deal. Probably has a bad name. A bad name as in a bad rap or a bad, an actual, like, <laughs> a terrible name? No, the, it's like the naming conversational commerce is way too broad. I Actually, yeah, that's why I asked. I agree because my answer to that would be, It still holds great promise for very specific use cases, but if you expect that all of commerce will move into your messenger, you're probably sorely mistaken. Uh, Virtual reality, 2017. Will it be relevant in B2C and B2B? Uh, not usually, it's too early. Too early. Yeah, same, too early. I think I think it's time has come for gaming and yeah. uh, that'll be exciting to see what the possibilities are, but it doesn't feel like all the pieces are there yet. Worst trend in product design today, Emmett? Conversational commerce? It could be, it could be, yeah. I mean, the misapplication of, of things like that, yeah. Um, probably overall, like the, the silver bullet mentality, whether it's conversational commerce or bots, today uh, or yeah. bots uh, throughout this year or shiny buttons 15 years ago, you know what I mean? There's always something and, and you've got to be able to consider whether something is a trend or, or an actual new building block. Yeah. Paul? Yeah, my answer is, is built on that. Um, AI... No one actually kind of can define agreeably what AI even is. When most of say AI, they mean if this, then that statements. Yeah. Very Which, bad. Let's all um, just take some humble pie and agree that we're not there yet. Uh, Emmett, what has been your favorite new product of 2016 and, and why? I have a very unsexy answer for this, but the truth is uh, it's these Belkin Wemo light switch controller things, um, which have just removed this daily sense of very small but 
noticeable friction in my every every night of going to bed of shutting off all of the lamps all around the room. The the I will say that is that how perfect your life level, is. That this is actually very exciting. <laughs> uh, well, so I'll, I'll build on it. At Google, there used to be this concept of that does a product pass the toothbrush test, which is like, would you use it a couple at least a couple of times a day? And so this is something that removes a very tiny thing, but if you can do a tiny improvement a couple of times a day every day of your life that's decent I will say from a product point of view it's still a total mess there's actually no system behind how home automation works yet to really tie it together so you have to sell a tape all the bits together have you tried that Google Echo equivalent or I think that is probably the route to it coming together Uh, Paul favourite product of the past year Uh, I think one of the most ingenious amazing inventions of the last year was Tesla's roof tiles Right. Uh, I just like out of nowhere, suddenly it all makes sense. Oh, like, yeah, don't put these big things on your house. Just make tiles that do that instead. And it harks back to the idea we were talking about earlier, which is like building a bridge to the future. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, put this foreign looking sci fi object on your roof or just swap out your tiles. Yeah, it's, it's, it taps into an existing behavior. Like yeah. It's like now, in the future, you can imagine it'll be a choice of what roof tile do you want? Do it's you want the one that happens to pair your house? I thought so. Right. Which yeah. is, which it's is a no brainer. Yeah. And they're cheaper. It's amazing. Amazing uh, invention. Uh, I have to say, if you want to consider a system of interacting elements, uh, the ultimate example must be the zoomed, Elon Musk zoomed out plan where one of the things he needs to put in place to get humanity to Mars is better roof tiles like who would have thought right but but all of the interlocking yeah. strategies of these companies fits yeah. together to meet his ultimate goal if it wasn't a lightning round I'd get you to explain that <laughs> I thought it was self evident <laughs> I'm going to bring it back way down to earth and say my favourite product of 2016 has been Bear a note taking app oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> which is way less inspirational than, than Emmett's light bulbs I'm sure okay biggest lesson you've learned about product building in the past year Paul I think um for us as a company which has um, valued many small projects, getting value out to customers as fast as possible, scoping small. We did three big projects this year. They're actually the three biggest projects in our history, each at the time was. And what were they? Our campaigns, smart campaigns launch in May, uh, Messenger V3, which is our third version of our Messenger in August, and then Educate, our new product just right. launched. They were all three big projects. Uh, big for us, which is actually, you know, Messenger and Educate were... Uh, just around 12, 13 months, which is huge for us. And I learned that you shouldn't do three big projects all at the same time <laughs> because it's just really hard. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. Emmett, would you agree? I would agree, yeah, specific to our own experience doing those three big projects in the year. But like when you're taking on that amount of work, it's to figure out where and when to sweat the details, basically, that um, if you're going to obsess over every tiny thing, then you're going to get nowhere or almost nowhere very slowly. And so it's another one of those art versus science things that there's no hard and fast rules, but you get a better sense over time. And we taught ourselves that lesson, I think, many times this year as to when to make that trade-off, when to let go and live with it for now versus when to make sure that you just polish the hell out of one specific thing, you know. And then lastly, like obviously a lot of our listeners are, you know, product folks, marketing folks, designers, founders, CEOs. Looking ahead to 2017, uh, what do you think will be most relevant in product design and product creation in the year ahead? Yeah, uh, you know, as much as we've shitted on bots for most of this chat, um, I do think that next year, this 2017, 
we will see really, really useful applications of, I'll say bots, but really it's automation, like simple automation um, via probably conversational interfaces is one way to describe it. But I think we'll see real application of these things. You know, situations where computers are better than humans at doing things people need them to do. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll see pretty rapidly over the course of the year a really quick maturation of the use cases where these bots shine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Emmett? Uh, I, I, so, something like that as well. I, like, I think the definition of um, conversational commerce and thinking of it as sending texts to a, a, a bot is a bit narrow. And if you broaden it slightly and think, hey, I've got a service, there are many, many endpoints, whether it's an Amazon Echo, so a voice UI or... Facebook Messenger or something like that, which, which is conversational commerce UI, or a website or an app or something else. It's that, again, it's a system level thinking thing. It's when is the appropriate place to surface my functionality to someone? What is the mode that they're in, whether they want to speak or type or, or something else that's most efficient or comfortable for them? And like thinking about your product as a as more of an ecosystem with many endpoints, I think. Uh, so it, it, it's what Paul said, but I think you could it could surface in many places and not just in messengers. The interesting thing for me about like thinking about it in terms of a system, uh, not to go out of quick round, but like, yeah, it's <laughs> just... Too late? Yeah. too late for that. <laughs> Forgot about the lightning <laughs> yeah, yeah. round thing. Uh, that's the last question. Uh, the most interesting thing about that is I think it, it kind of relegates as a pessimistic word, but I think it kind of... It, it reduces like the idea of UX and wireframes and screens and all that to like being like a window into a system, and that window will change over time. As will watch interfaces, voice interfaces, bot interfaces. It's just an interesting thing that like you know, for sure for twenty seventeen, product folks should be thinking about systems not just because it's cleaner and all that, but because it's actually the most the best way to have sustainability of a product. I I think it's interesting because all of this stuff we're talking about probably. I would imagine sounds very fuzzy and vague to a lot of people out there who have, you know, even several years of design UI design experience. Paul was talking about maybe the school of of design where we come from, uh, where 15 or whatever years ago, we were maybe building complex websites, shopping websites or something like that. And things like the taxonomy of the site and thinking about this as a structured entity is a really important skill to have. As an industry, a lot of the attention in the past 10 years or so, as we went very mobile-centric, went to one of screens and a small number of screens and unbundling of functionality into very small apps. And I think we're moving a bit back, not, not back to where we came from, but a lot of those skills that served us well when we thought about things like information architecture and, and our products as abstract things before we got practical will serve people well in this new world. Yeah. One tiny thing I'd add is that... Um, uh, you know, we had our tour, Inside Intercom tour in the summer, and yeah. uh, the talk that I gave at that, some of the examples that, that it was about basically some of the stuff Emma's talking about, and some of the examples that might make this a bit more concrete to people are things like um, X.ai, which is like, you know, a really interesting startup. Um, there, you know, it's .ai, it's all the cool new things that uh, everyone loves to it's write about. It's the new about. .io, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, but their interface, their main interface is email. Yeah. And similarly, there's like um, startups like Magic and their main interface is SMS. Yeah. And so we were, I think, like Emmett said, in a, in a period where the mobile screen was the dominant pattern that, that, that everything else emanated from. And we're fast moving beyond that. Like Alexa, like you know, Echo and Alexa and these things are taking off and 
our world is going to look quite different next year, this time next year. That's technology for you. Thanks very much, folks, and thanks everyone for listening. Thanks. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com. Listener.